this time, take God's Word and find Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3 this morning. Two weeks ago, preaching from Mark 3, 7 to 12, in a message entitled, What to Be Known For, I made the argument that we ought to be known for what our Master was known for. Namely, for his ministry and for his identity. The title of the message today is, What to Live For. Last time was, What to Be Known For. Today, we're going to learn what we should live for. The message will be pulled out of the inspired words of Mark 3, 13 to 16. I want to begin by reading those verses all the way through verse 19. So please follow along with me as I read Mark 3:13-19. The word of God again reads, And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, and James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder, and Andrew and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Father, thank you for your word. Please enable me to speak truth, to speak with passion and accuracy. Please help these precious people hear and learn. The kind of questions that humans of all generations wrestle with are existential ones. Questions like, what is the purpose of my life? What's the point of all this? Why am I here? What am I doing? Have you all asked yourself those questions before? Those questions which are valid have been a topic of debate and still is amongst the unbelieving world for centuries. In fact, to the unregenerate, the reason for living is quite subjective. And it's either self-centered or other-centered. Have you ever taken a philosophy class? All philosophy is, is men debating back and forth about existential questions, right? Just this past weekend, I I was required to sit under suicide prevention training as part of my military duty. The strategy we're expected to employ revolves around helping the suicidal person find something to live for. So the job as the counselor is, is to analyze what they're saying and be able to discern that valuable thing that person can live for. 
Most of the time, it's a child or a spouse or a family member. And what that strategy is, is simply a lesson on how to worship an idol. So unbelievers, they're blind to the truth. Therefore, they aimlessly wander and search to no avail for the answers to those aforementioned existential questions. It's like they walk around a dark room that's pitch black with a blindfold on. They never find the answers. But we who believe, the regenerate, the sons of God, the slaves of Christ, we know why we're here. We who have been born again, elected to salvation before the foundation of the world, know for certain what our purpose is in life. And we're reminded of that purpose in Mark 3, 13 to 19. In our passage this morning, we're reintroduced to the fundamental truth that Christ has entrusted the gospel to fallible, finite men and women like you and me. In other words, the Lord Jesus has a redemptive plan to reconcile men and women to God and that plan involves each and every single one of you. He has commanded us to deliver the good news, and there is no other plan. Furthermore, there is no other purpose in life. Our main purpose in life is simple, and it boils down to this, Christian. Preach the gospel. This was the disciples' priority, and it remains the Christian's priority today and all throughout the church age. What we discover in Mark 3.13 is the disciples' call to preach, and in verses 14 to 19, the disciples' commission to preach. As we'll see clearly, their purpose in life was to spread the gospel. And brothers and sisters... Please listen. For us who believe, I submit to you that our purpose is the exact same. So on the days when you feel hopeless, lost, when you're discouraged, and you start to feel like Jonah. I just heard Jonah talk today to the children. When you start to feel like Jonah, you just want to die sometimes. When you're discouraged. For when you feel like Bill Murray in the Groundhog Day. And you just get sick of the mundane routine. Remember this. That God has entrusted the stewardship of his gospel to you. We too are called and commissioned to serve the Lord in that way. If you don't lose sight of that, then you don't need to be like Jonah. You don't need to wallow in depression. 
You don't need to ask, what's the point of all this? Because we know the point. So I hope this will encourage you today, this message, and remind you of why you're here. First, let's look at the call to preach. Verse 13. Draw your attention to verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. They came to him. Now, notice those first two verbs in verse 13. What do you see placed in front of them? Anybody? Who has an NASB on their lap? You guys are true Christians. No, so if, so if, if you're looking at your Bible um, and you don't have an NASB, there's probably nothing there, right? Well, in NASB, which is what I preach from, there's a star placed in front of, he went up and summoned. And that's there to indicate that these verbs in the original language are historical presence. Present tense. But they've been translated in your Bible as an English past tense to conform to our modern usage. The Greek authors, authors frequently use the present tense. For the sake of heightened vividness. So it's to transport the readers in imagination to the actual scene at the time of the occurrence. So literally, it says, Jesus is going on the mountain. Jesus is summoning them. And so Mark here, I say this because Mark wants us to imagine ourselves there, as if it's going on presently. He went up to the mountain. He's going to the mountain, and he's summoning. This word summoned is a compound word in the original language. It's from pros, meaning to or toward, and kaleo, which means to call. So literally, Jesus called the man to himself. He bid them to come in order to confront them face to face. So this is more than just a polite request from the pulpit. It's more than a casual invite. This is an authoritative demand he is making upon the lives of the men he is calling out to. It's a binding assertion. And it's a direct order by a superior toward a group of subordinates. As a military man, I get this. It's very clear. I remember the day after basic training when I was a private in the Army. I was sent to my first duty station in Anchorage, Alaska. And one of the first things I had to do was take a physical training test, which consisted of a two-mile run uh, and two minutes of push-ups and sit-ups. You had to run two miles within a certain time frame and do a minimum amount of push-ups and sit-ups in two minutes. Now, at that time, I was coming off of 30 days of leave. <laughs> now, what do you think a 19-year-old kid who had 30 days off after basic training was doing? You can, you can use your imagination. So I was fat and out of shape. And the very first thing I had to do 
was take a physical training test. How do you think I performed? Because I was so out of shape. I failed that test. Great first impression, huh? So I knew I was petrified when I got the results. I knew I was in for it. Infantry soldiers don't fail their PT test. So I knew I was going to have to answer for my failure. And sure enough, that day, in fact, that morning, I was summoned to the platoon sergeant's office. And I had to give an account for my unsatisfactory performance. Now, when the sergeant summoned me, when he dispatched another sergeant to go retrieve me and bring me back to the office, now, do, you, do you think I had a choice in the matter? Do you think, you know, sorry, I'll get, yeah, I'll, I'll get to it later. You know, I'm, I'm kind of busy. Uh, I'll be there when, when I get around to it. You, you think that's, uh, that's how I responded? I knew immediately that I had no choice but to follow the order, not just casually, with a sense of urgency. Now, in tantamount fashion, what Jesus summoned the men whom he handpicked, what did they do? The text says they came to him. Just as the sergeant summoned me to his office, Jesus summoned, called out to them, imperative. They obeyed. They complied with their master's order. They were responsible to act, and they did what they were commanded. You'll note that these men were not temporary volunteers, nor were they consenting hirelings for a seasonal job. They were drafted into God's service for life by means of predestination. These 12 men were sovereignly chosen by our Lord, not only for salvation, but for ministry. Have you ever read John 15, 16? If, if you wrestle and struggle with the doctrine of God's sovereignty, get a bright yellow highlighter and highlight John fifteen sixteen. Jesus, speaking to these men, said, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you could go and bear Can the doctrine of sovereign election be any clearer? He flat out says it. I chose you. So it goes without saying that in this age, the church age, where we are now, Christ is not going to appear and call you audibly. <laughs> if you think he does, let's talk later. He's not going to do that. However, 
I will say with authority. In the word of God. But if you're a believer. Christ has summoned you. He has summoned you. To serve. He calls you to salvation by his spirit through his word. To do the work of gospel ministry. Which was the priority of the twelve. There's not a single one of us here today that have been summoned to sit in a pew, to sit in a green chair. There's no such thing as a professing Christian who's called to sit idle, to soak it up, to coast through life. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing at all biblical about Christian consumerism. You're not here just to consume, are you? You're not customers. You're believers, you're servants, you're worshipers. And I am here to lead you in that, right? Thank you, Don. Thank you. So every one of us, we've been summoned by Jesus, and we all have assignments from God. And, and the Bible does not allow us for time off. There's nothing in the Bible about retirement from service. Everyone has been summoned. We all have assignments. Firstly, to be evangelists, right? You know, we're evangelical Baptists. We believe that the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 applies to everybody individually. As you're going about your day-to-day life, make disciples. So if you're not doing that, you're not living what God intends for you to do. But secondly, we're not just called to be evangelists. We are called to good works. There is a duty and a task that God has called you to. Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God had prepared, prepared beforehand so that we could walk in them. So I, I must ask, brothers and sisters, listen. Are you walking in them? Are you walking in the works that God has prepared you? Do you walk with an evangelistic consciousness? Or is proclaiming the gospel the furthest thing from your mind? Do you serve in the church? Using your spiritual gift for for the edification of the saints? Or do you just show up on Sunday morning when it's convenient for you and just consume? You're a believer. You're called to preach. You're called to use your gift in the confines of the local church. And if you're not doing those things, 
No wonder. Or are you looking for answers to those existential questions that believers can't figure out? If you're not preaching the gospel, if you're not serving, you're not living the life that God intended. I want you to know, secondly, not only the call to preach, but beginning in verse 14, the commission to preach. Verse 14. These 12 ordinary men, uneducated men, were called to saving faith and called to preach the gospel in order to, listen, in order to be commissioned, to be sent out. So we read in verse 14, and the same clause repeated in verse 16. And he appointed the twelve. Appointed. Zero in on that verb, appointed. What's interesting about this Greek word that's translated appointed in your Bible is that it's not tasso, which, which means to set, place, or appoint. Like, it, like, like uh, in Acts 13.48, which says, as many as who were appointed to eternal life believe. That, that's not the word here. The word here literally means to make. So Jesus is not merely necessarily setting or appointing them to a role. Jesus is transforming them. He is crafting them into their new calling. You see the distinction? This is an official ordination, if you will. It is being made into a servant of God. Isn't that profound? You are not just here to be set to a role. God is molding you and making you into his own servant. Wow. Here, these men are being set apart for a lifetime of ministry. Here, they are being designated to a specific office. In other words, they're being commissioned. Here we see also the making, the creation, the genesis of the office of apostleship. Now, why did Jesus do this? Why did he select, handpick average Joes? To be his ambassadors. Why wouldn't he go to the seminaries? Why wouldn't he go to the learned men? Why wouldn't he go to those men whom have a reputation? Celebrities. Good question, isn't it? Well, I don't think we can know the answer to those questions completely. But the text does tell us why he ordained 12 men. There are three reasons, if you look in the text. Number one, so that they would be with him. That is to say, to be 
personally mentored by Christ himself. You know who really got the best ministerial training, the best seminary education? It was the 12, wasn't it? Because they were with Jesus day and night for three years. Amazing. The second reason why Christ called these 12 ordinary men was so that he could send them to preach. We'll get to that more in a second. And thirdly, in verse 15, it says to have authority to cast out demons. To do the work to authenticate the preaching. So there you have it. These 12 men were called and commissioned to learn from Christ, to preach the message of Christ, and to do the work of Christ. It goes without saying, doesn't it, that the only one out of those three actions that remain relevant today is what? Preaching. Did you spend time with Jesus today physically? No. Can you cast out demons? No. But guess what? You can preach. You can proclaim the gospel. And that's what you need to do. That's your purpose. That's your purpose in life. These 12 men were preachers. And what we have following is the revelation of who these preachers are. What follows in the, in the remainder of this passage is the revelation of exactly who these first 12 evangelistic proclaimers of the gospel were. And with the time I have left, I, I can't in good conscience uh, do a brief survey of them all today because even if I allotted five minutes per apostle, that means I'd have to preach for another 65 minutes. And nobody wants that, right? I'm trying to preach shorter messages so we can kind of grab things a little bit tighter. Jack is thinking, yes, finally. So, I want to just touch on the first one today. The first one. It'll take a few minutes. They're looking at the clock. We sang less songs today, so we have more time. But um, I, I, I want to I zero in on this man, Peter, for a minute. Because we learn how to preach from Peter. This gets me kind of pumped up. I try to contain myself. The first of the twelve, a man whom you're familiar with. Especially since you're hearing uh, the book of First Peter, right? First Peter, right? Not Second Peter. First Peter preached from the pulpit. I'm sure you guys are acquainted with Peter. But if you look at verse 16, we're, we're compelled to dig a little deeper and find out who this preacher is. So if you look at verse 16, it says, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Peter is named first, obviously. And I point that out because it's significant. It indicates something significant. Mark wants us to understand that Peter is the spokesman. Peter is the ringleader. And if you've been a Christian for a while, you probably know that Peter was an impulsive man. 
often speaking before thinking, which I can relate to. He had a habit of getting into trouble more than on one occasion. For example, in Matthew 16, 22 to 23, Peter rebukes, or, yeah, Peter rebukes Jesus uh, for saying that he has to suffer and die. And then what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. So Peter is rough around the edges. Peter needs training. He needs a little work. He needs patience. He needs grace. And the Lord gave it to him, didn't he? The Lord would transform Peter into a grounded, steadfast, leader. The first among equals. That is why Jesus gave him the name Peter, which means rock. But when Jesus first met Peter, he was anything but a rock, wasn't he? I would say that Peter was more like a soft pillow, as was evidenced by his denial of Christ when confronted by a little girl. Now think about that. Here you have a man who walked with Jesus for three years, ate with him, sat at his feet, witnessed his miracles. And then a servant girl says, hey, you're with that guy Jesus. And to deny the Lord. But after Peter saw the risen Lord Jesus, and after became filled with the Spirit. This puny little man would be the dominant preacher among the apostles. And Galatians 2, verse 9 says he was a pillar of the church. In fact, Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost demonstrated this radical change from a fickle, frail, scared, weak disciple, which means learner, Fortified, fearless, bold, courageous, authoritative preacher of the gospel. People like to point to Paul as evidence of God's miraculous conversion. But I'd love to point to Peter. He was a preacher. God took him, broke him, and he made him one of the most powerful preachers in church history. Go ahead and turn to Acts 2, would you? Since we have so much time left. Peter's sermon on Pentecost is, is an amazing sermon. Any, anybody uh, ever play sports in here? Anybody who's sportsing, right? Uh, a lot of athletes, they, they, have, they have a routine, right? They, they get them pumped up. Before we go on patrols in the army, we'd listen to music that is pumped up. Now, if there's anything that should be able to pump up a preacher or an evangelist like you, it's Peter in Acts 2. Steve Lawson says, would say things like, we need an IV hookup of Peter. So I'm going to give you an IV hookup 
this morning, and hopefully Peter's passion will bleed into our souls here. Because we, we learn so much about Peter simply by taking a brief observation of his preaching. This sermon in Acts 2 stands as the premier example of a biblical sermon. It has all the components of a proper sermon. Introduction, proposition, indicative, which is truth-telling, statements, and imperative, what to do. If a sermon's missing any of those, it's not a sermon. But here we see a masterful sermon. But not only that, what else does preaching entail? The proper tone. And I'll demonstrate that to you. Look at Acts 2, verse 5. It says, Peter preached to devout men from every nation under heaven. So stop right there and think, okay, just not that long ago, he quivered and fled after a question raised by a girl. And now you have Peter, who's getting ready to stand up before thousands of the devout men of the world. Think about that. I can't imagine, can you? I mean, how many of you, if I asked you to come up here and preach, you, you'd probably shake in your boots a little bit. Can, can you imagine standing in front of thousands of men who are more powerful than you, more educated than you, more knowledgeable, more influential? But Peter stands up and look what it says. Verse 14. Peter, taking his stand, okay, he's, he's standing up, he's not sitting on a stool, okay, he's, he's not sitting down on a rock getting ready to have a conversation. He takes a stand and raised his voice, there, there's the tone of preaching. Preaching, it's not supposed to be a quiet, monotone sound. Teaching is, maybe. Not preaching. Preachers raise their voice. They speak with authority because they're a herald bringing a message from the king. He raised his voice and declared to them, he projected so that these thousands of pagans could Look at the beginning of the sermon. Men of Judea and all who live in Jerusalem, let it be known to you and give heed to my words. So he's commanding them from the beginning. Oh, okay, I, I told you I'd get pumped up with this sermon. But you see, he, he's, he, he's addressing his audience off the bat. It's a, it's a, it's a, uh, a vocative in, 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 the, in the original. It's a direct address. He's saying, hey, you. You need to listen to what I have to say. Verse 15. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken to the mouth of Joel. So, bam! Peter is an expositor. He stands up. He raises his voice. He projects it out. And he says, this is what the word of God says. Starts out with the scripture. 
It's looking like a good sermon already, isn't it? Now, drop down to um, uh, verse, verse 22. Uh, verses, uh, just for the sake of, uh, of brevity, verses 14 to 36, they're all indicatives, meaning they're just stating truths. He's stating what happened, what is the case. Okay? So you have to have the truth. You have to have the objective reality before you can get to the you, before you can get to the so what, before you can get to the imperative command. Okay? And then in the middle of his sermon, verse 22, again, he, he addresses and commands his audience. He says, men of Israel, listen to these words. And he's about to give them the gospel. Jesus, the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Wow. He's a doctrinal preacher. That's some pretty witty theology, wouldn't you say? But then, but then he gets to you. You nailed to a cross. You did it. You nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. You're guilty. You're culpable. You're responsible. God planned it. But you're still responsible. But God raised him up again from the dead, putting an agony, putting an end to agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. So as I mentioned already, all the way through verse 36, it, it's statement after statement after statement, more indicatives. But drop down to verse 37. Peter's massive audience. Notice what they do. They demand application. I love this part. It says they were pierced to the heart. Let me ask you something. Does preaching pierce your heart? If it doesn't, you're listening to a bad preacher or your heart is hard and stony. After hearing, hearing this sermon, they were pierced to the heart. They were convicted. They felt the weight of their sin. And, 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 they, and they said to Peter and the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What should we do with this, with this information? What should we do with this revelation? And what does Peter say? He doesn't say, you know, just think about it for a little while. You know, we're just, we're just having open dialogue here. And, you know, what do you think? I, I, I'm, I don't want to offend you, so you know, why don't you think you do what you think's best? How dare preachers do that? Preachers who preach like that should make you angry. Because we see that model nowhere in Scripture. He gives them a command. 
he gives them the, the uh, imperative. In response to this message, in response to this truth, he says, repent. Each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's what you must do. That's the appropriate response. And verse 40 says, he kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Now, brothers and sisters, that's a sermon. That's a sermon. That was his purpose in life, was to preach like that over and over and over again till he was put in the ground. Brothers and sisters, it's the same for you. Live to preach the gospel. Live to evangelize. You have been commissioned. Now fulfill that commission. So from here on out, Peter lived the rest of his life fulfilling this calling and commission. And for the sake of time, I'll leave it at that. But you've probably heard this before, that um, Peter met his end by way of martyrdom. According to one church history father, Origen, Peter was crucified upside down at his request because he did not count himself worthy to die the same way Jesus did. He was, he was faithful to the end. May we be faithful to the end, brothers and sisters. I'm frail too, and I'm selfish too. I'd rather live for myself. I'd rather eat, drink, and be merry, ride my Harley, and lock myself in my house with my family. But that's sin. And it's sin for you to do the same. God has entrusted us with the work of this gospel. He could have written it in the sky above. He could have made the rocks cry out if he wanted to. He could have rained down Bibles from heaven in every tongue. He could dispatch legions of angels at any moment to preach. He could even use his own mighty voice and thunder it out for all to hear it He has chosen to take a fallen, depraved, wicked mankind to transform them, to summon them, and to commission them to preach. So if you're a follower of Christ, your purpose is to make known the gospel first and foremost. Are you fulfilling this in your life? When was the last time you evangelized someone? 
if you can't remember, then something needs to change. You need to remember that your calling and your commissioning is to be a proclaimer of the most precious news there is. That, dear church, is what you should be living for. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for calling us to yourself and summoning us to to yourself and to commissioning us to preach the gospel. We, we, we find fulfillment and we find our life's purpose in that truth. Father, please make us courageous and make us more effective preachers of the truth. For your glory.